your Bibles. If you do, turn to Romans chapter 7, Romans chapter 7. We are continuing the series, uh, Royal Invitation, as we make our way to verse by verse through the book of Romans. Now, uh, so uh, encouraging to hear uh, what Jesse shared with us this morning, and uh, it's so exciting to hear the chaplaincy of our military, and uh, I hope you will make it a matter of prayer uh, for not only them, but also all those who are trying to minister uh, definitely in that very diverse setting there. And uh, so I hope you'll make it a matter of prayer. Also, Jesse and Lindsay uh, will be dedicating their third child in the next service. Uh, little Rachel, who's six months old, will be dedicated in the next service. So y'all be praying for that also, if you don't mind. Romans chapter seven, look at the introduction on your outline. We're gonna jump right in. As it relates to the believer, Romans six is about the freedom from sin. While Romans seven is about freedom from the law. Now, I think most of us understand and, and see that with freedom comes much responsibility. How many of you have uh, maybe said something like that to your children once they get their license and they go out and, and all of a sudden they have this new freedom? But yet, what do we know? With that freedom comes tremendous responsibility. I think the first time we let our kids take off by themselves, we held our breath the whole time. You know, uh, we, we know that. How about a young adult getting their own place? Again, new freedom, but guess what hits them? All the responsibilities of what it means to live on your own. Uh, how many of you remember those days? And that's when you really liked mom and dad after you found that out, right? When it was just on you. But with this freedom, definitely comes responsibility. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But look on your outline. The first half of chapter 7 is considered theological. So if you were to look at the verses we're going to look at today, we're trying to build a theological case for the reason that we are living above the law, theologically. But then if you look on your outline, while the second half of this chapter is considered practical. So this week, we're going to look at a, a theological dissertation, I guess you could say, about what it means to live above the law. But not only that, the next week when we come back, we're going to look at how does that practically play out in our lives. So think about where the believer is. Think about what we've discussed over the last month. We're living under grace. That's where we're living. But we're also living above sin and above the law. And I'll show you a picture of that at the end of the sermon. So look on your outline. The reasons for freedom from the law. And the first thing that Paul gives us is the exclamation, the exclamation. So Paul, it's important to note that he's talking to Christians. In Romans chapter seven, verse one, he says this. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a person as long as he lives. Now, when you take that verse at face value, it almost sounds contradictory to what I just told you. But the key to what he's talking about is the phrase, as long as he lives. Now, the law has nothing to do with a person who is already dead. Think about that. If a criminal dies, he is no longer subject to prosecution and punishment, no matter how heinous the crime may have been. Lee Harvey Oswald, the accused assassin of President John F. Kennedy, was never brought to trial for his murder, never faced any circumstances, any consequences as it related to the crime that he committed. Why? Because he had died. He had died. The believer, listen to this, is not bound to the law 
Because according to scripture, he or she has already died. Now think about the case that Paul's building here. When you look at this, you see in Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3, we saw the guilt, the guilt that we are under. We see that we're all guilty before God. And then we move into chapter 4 and we begin to look at the subject of God's grace. And to understand fully what God's grace is, we must understand what sin is and how we live above it. But not only that, the implications of the law and how we live above that also. But to get above all that, we need to realize that we have died to ourselves. There has been a death that has taken place. And so that's the context that he's telling us this in. So Galatians 2.20, we're familiar with this verse. Look here on the screen. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, what does that mean? It means I have faced my death. He goes on and says, in the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, gave, who loved me and gave himself for me. And then it goes on and says in verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Now, here's what we need to understand. The law will always come short, come up short. The law will never get us anywhere when it comes to this relationship with God himself. The law just proves something. It proves our guilt. It proves that we are justified to live in shame and guilt. But here's what we need to understand. What Paul is trying to introduce here is that the law is only binding for the living, for the living. So in verse one, we see Paul's exclamation. In verse two, we're going to see the example. Look on your outline, the example. In Romans chapter seven, verse two, he, he shifts gears almost abruptly and he says this, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Now, verse two of chapter seven is really not talking about the idea of divorce or marriage. The point Paul is making is that a marriage covenant is only good if both of the people are still alive. Now, think about some of the things you did at your wedding ceremony. When you were married, you vowed to, 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 to one another till death, what? Do us part. The vow of marriage is in effect as long as you both are living and that's the context he's talking about. So in the context of spirituality, if a person dies, then they're not under the law. The whole idea of dying to oneself, it is the only way we can accomplish what God desires for us. The law could not accomplish it. How many of you realize that? We never measured up. How many of you realize that? We never did. We, we, we didn't, it wasn't impossible. Paul records in this verse, basically, if you look at the context as we make our way into verse three, that literally we have two husbands. Look on your outline, the old husband, that's quite a way to distinguish him, isn't it? The old husband is the law. It's the whole idea of religion. How many of you have seen people attempt to live before God religion? How many of you have actually possibly tried it yourself? The bondage that it puts you in. It's the whole idea of the things that we can't do and what we can do and how, how we think it will please God. But there's so much more. The old husband represents that. So look at verse two again. He says, for the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. 
But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So really, when you look at this context, the law is the first husband. The wife represents the believer, the Christian, the one who's come to God on, by provision of Jesus Christ. So when a Christian is married to the law, it is an impossible situation. It's impossible. Why? Because the law is perfect and the law is demanding. How many of you figured that out? It is. It's perfect. And it's very demanding. How would you like to have a perfect husband who is never wrong and you're always in the wrong? Now, some of you say, well, I think I live with that person. No, no. <laughs> Uh, I've done counseling with people. I know that that seems to be an appearance at times. But, but here's what you need to understand. He, he would dominate his wife and make lists of things for his wife to do and hands them to her every morning. He comes home from work at exactly the same time he's never late. He walks over to the list he gave, has given his wife and says, let's review your day. He then discovers the failures of her day. She then becomes frustrated. She feels that she will never measure up to his expectations. The point is, the first husband did not lift a finger to help her. The law does not make you a Christian. The law does not help us become all that God desires us to be. The law is just there to prove the, 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 our, our guilt and our shame. But the thing that we need to understand is a set of standards that we'll never be able to keep in this body. And so that's the old husband. It's demanding, never measures up. You always feel inadequate. Next, we have the new husband, Jesus. It speaks more of a relationship than a religion. Is completely different. So as you make your way into verse three, look at what it says. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. So basically, if we're trying to balance the whole idea of religion and we're trying to balance the whole idea of the provision that Jesus Christ has put forth through a relationship with him, through that provision, then guess what? We're still not getting anywhere. There's so many people trying to do that. So the wife is thinking, I wonder how I can get out of this relationship with this old husband. Well, I could murder him. I could divorce him. Maybe if I died, maybe that would work. If I died, I could get out of this. The question is, who has to die in this relationship? Vance Hafner, he was an old time preacher. Some of you have heard of him. He once told this true story. Now, it sounds far-fetching, but I went back and researched it. This is a true story. A lady owned this big plantation prior to, to the Civil War. Her husband died, and she became kind of loony through her grieving process. She had her husband stuffed and sat him in a chair in the parlor in an airtight glass case. When you walked into her house, you would see her husband sitting in the room. Now, I know my wife loves me. She would never love me this much, I, I tell you. <laughs> she wants me cremated. She wants me taken out of here. No, anyway. <laughs> her neighbors, concerned about her, encouraged her to take a vacation. So she left, went overseas for two years. While there, she fell in love and remarried, and they decided to move back to the plantation. However, she forgets about her, her first husband sitting in the house. He unlocks the door and starts to carry her over the threshold and promptly drops her and says, who is that? Oh, that's my old husband. 
His response was, well, he's got to go. And you see, when you look at this, it's a perfect analogy. It's that whole idea that the old husband has to go. The old husband has to go to make room for the new husband, the one that will treat her fairly and right. And so we're going to look at what that looks like in just a moment. So she has to get rid of the whole husband to bring the new husband. Look on your outline, the results of being free from the law or being free from the old husband. First of all, there's a new freedom. Look at the last part of verse three. It says, but if her husband dies, she is free from the law, from that law, so that she is no longer an adulteress, though she has married another man. So there's a new freedom to, to leave the law, to leave the, the trappings and the perfections of the law, to move into a different type of relationship with this new husband. There's a new freedom. And guess what? It comes with responsibility. But then there's not only a new freedom, there's a new relationship. Look at verse four. Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Now, who does he say has died? In chapter six, it says we were all in Christ. So when Christ died and we accept the terms and the provisions he brought forth, so when Christ died, we identify by doing what? We die with him. We die with him. And that's the picture in which we're seen. So therefore, my brother, you've also been dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So chapter six says that we were all in Christ. And when Christ died on the cross, we died with him. Galatians 2.20 again says, I am crucified with Christ. Now, help, let me help you understand that. Positionally, that's where we stand. Positionally, that's how God sees us. Now, does it practically play out that way all the time? No, we, we blow it at times, don't we? But, but here's what I want you to see. The Bible says we were all in Christ. He died for us. And we died in essence with him. He broke the bondage and we were set free. He says we have all died. Our old husband was the law, but who is our new husband? It's, the, it's, the, it's Jesus. First of all, before your relationship with Christ, symbolically, theoretically, and positionally, you were married to the law. Before you became a Christian, the law just told you what to do, and you kept blowing it, and you couldn't keep up. But then you died to it in Christ or through Christ. And now you're married to Christ, a new husband, a new relationship, a relationship of freedom and love. Not only do we see a new freedom and a new re relationship, but also a new purpose. There's a new purpose that comes with this. Look at verse four, the second part or the latter part. It says that we should bear fruit to God. You see, this new relationship that we're taking on, this new relationship where we've died to the other and now we're alive to the new is a whole relationship in which there will be fruit as a result of that new relationship. You see what I'm saying? There's where the responsibility comes in. We're growing in Christ. We're growing in, in the fact that we are dead to, to the law and dead to sin. Look at verse five. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit to death. That means we were identifying to death. That means that we, if we had stayed on that path, it would have been about our destruction because the law, we would be judged by our works and the law would be the standard and we would have come up short. 
That's the old husband. But the new husband makes a new provision. Now, what is the fruit? Well, we know what the fruit is. The Bible's very clear in Galatians that now love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faithful, meekness, and self-control will come from this new relationship. What came from the old relationship? Guilt, shame, frustration. Never were, never were we adequate enough. There was never enough. It demanded more. It demanded even more, and it kept going. Now, think of this. Its purpose is to give us a more fruitful, productive life. That's the second husband. You will never be a productive Christian if you try to live by the law. You will be a, you will be a product, productive Christian and only if you learn to live in a relationship to Jesus by dying to self. Next, we find from being set free from the law a new motivation. There's something new that comes our way. Verse 6 says, but now we have been delivered from the law, the old husband, having died to what we were held by so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit. What does that imply? Things are going to change. Things will be different and not in the, old, in the oldness of the letter. Now let's go back to the illustration of marriage. The lady married to the hard demanding husband she cooks the meal, she cleans up the house and whatever other tasks need be. All the time, she hates it. Then the husband dies. She marries a new guy who now loves her, treats her with respect, cares for her needs, concerned about her welfare, does everything he can to make her life pleasant. Now she still does the same things, but her attitude has changed tremendously. Think about it. Now she serves him out of love, not out of fear and guilt or obligation. That is what Paul was saying is a new motivation in our life. Now that I am a Christian, does not, it does not mean that I do not need to keep the Ten Commandments or the law. No, no, it's further from that. But now, because of this, I still attempt to keep those laws, but my motivation has changed. It's not a matter of I should, but I want to. I want to please him. I want to please him. Psychologists tell us that anytime we put the word should in front of something, we automatically procrastinate or we talk ourselves out of even doing it. How many of you can attest to that? Yeah. You know, I should go on that diet. <laughs> what does that normally mean? Normally means I'm going to put it off or I'm not going to do it. I'm going to talk myself out of it. I should make better use of my time. I should be a better parent. You see, Jesus replaced the should of the Old Testament with the can of the New Testament. We have a new motivation through Jesus. Next, we see the, relation, the revelation of the law to the unbeliever. Now think about this. What, I, what was our relationship to the law before we met Jesus? What was the law's purpose? Look on your outline. The law defines the sin. The law defines the sin. Look at verse 7. What shall we then say? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. The law did have a purpose. I, I wouldn't even be aware of sin unless there was the law. I wouldn't understand my guilt. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. 
Paul's basically saying this. He's really bringing his own testimony forward. And he's basically saying, I had a problem, problem with coveting. With coveting people's influence over others. With, with coveting and wanting more and, and more and more and having this and having that. And he said, listen, if it wasn't in the, in the law, I would never know myself as, 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 as guilty before God. So the law has a purpose. And that's what it did for me before I came to know him. The law determines what is right and wrong. Notice Paul seems to throw in the 10th commandment in the passage. The 10th commandment, listen, is the only one that deals with inner desires. And basically, it's the, it is the basis for most all other sins. That inner desire to covet. Next, the law determines the sin. Romans 7 verse 8 says this, but sin taken opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was, one, I, I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. Now, what does he mean by this? He's talking about the fact that the law sometimes can prov provoke sin. How many of you know what I'm talking about? The law can provoke sin, all right? Now, <laughs> how many of you agree that sometimes if there's a law against something, it makes that sin more desirable in our flesh? How many of you know what I'm talking about? How many of you uh, ever been around a young child? You tell them not to do it. What do they do? Have you ever seen it play out? I'll, sometimes I just say, no, just see how it goes. You no, know, I'm just kidding. But, but, but it's very interesting what that child will do. Many times, does that child say, okay, mother, father, since you said not to, I won't do it. And they walk off. They don't respond that way, do they? Now there's something else in play. Now you've told them not to do this. So what does that child normally do? What do they do? They start moving towards it. And then they just, have you ever noticed sometimes they don't even take their eyes off of you? Have you ever noticed that? I mean, now if I'm in, the, in, a, in, a, in a, now if it was my grandkids, it's funny. But when it was my children, uh-uh, that ain't going to work. <laughs> but, but it's very interesting how, how they kind of move towards that. And, and now it makes it more desirable. They want it even more. Sin has a way, excuse me, the law has a way of doing that. Human nature is that moment you tell somebody, don't do this. There's a natural desire to do it. That's in, true in all humanity. The flesh, the flesh response, when you tell a child not to do something, the more the child wants to do it. Prohibition increases desire. What did God tell Adam? And then Adam told Eve later. Thou shalt not eat of the fruit of the tree of good and, knowledge, good and evil. Where do we see them in the next scene in the scriptures? Right there at that tree. They're told no. There was something about that that caused them. There was something that was reaching within them to move towards that. It's, it's interesting how that happens. We have a natural inclination to do what we want to do. Next, the law destroys the sinner. Look at verse 10. And the commandment which was to bring life, I found to bring death. The very thing that I thought that I, if I could just keep it, if I could just somehow manage it on my own, 
then somehow maybe I could be acceptable. Maybe it would bring life and a productive life. And how many of you have found out it didn't? Didn't even come close, did it? He says it brought forth death. It brought forth guilt. It brought forth shame. I didn't know what to do with it. It brought forth bondage. Verse 11, for sin taken occasion by the commandment deceived me and by it killed me. It was leading me to a path of destruction. Now think of this. The law reveals our guilt. The law was never meant to change human nature. It can't do it. The law can't change you. You cannot clean up your act by keeping the Ten Commandments. All the laws in the world won't keep you from a sinful nature. Listen, the law has no power to keep us from sin. It just shows us how guilty we are when we do sin. Next, the law demonstrates the character of God. Now, now it's almost like Paul's up there saying all these things, and all of a sudden, it's like he changes everything. He says, oh, yeah, by the way, the the law is really the, the character of God. It's God on display. And so by keeping the law, what are you doing? You're displaying the character of God. And he's basically saying, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, this thing that we keep saying is bad, and this thing that we say is old husband, old husband needs to go, guess what? It's really the character of God. How many of you think that's kind of ironic? Then all of a sudden, he flips it on us. Look what he says in verse 12. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. Paul, how can you start off this whole section by saying that the law is the old husband? It's overbearing. It's frustrating. There's so many things associated with it. Listen, the law in and of itself is not. The law is perfect. It reveals the holiness of God. The problem is us and our approach to the law and how we move towards it and how it is because we're dealing with the flesh. And therefore, there needed to be a provision through Jesus Christ. The frustration comes when we think we can make ourselves acceptable by keeping that law. We'll never do it. It will lead to frustration upon frustration. That's what religion seems to tell us. He's saying that you're never going to get there. But by the way, the law, you need to understand this. The law is perfect. The law really reveals the character of God. And so therefore, it does have a place in our lives. The purpose of the law, you know, is not to, to make us perfect. It will never do that. It's through the provision of Jesus Christ that makes us perfect before God. Lastly, the law displays the darkness of sin. Look at verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? You're telling me now the law's good? You're telling me now this is something that we need to acknowledge, that it's holy, that it's perfect, that it reveals the character of God and and, and yet become death to me? He's saying certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good. Really what he's saying here is when I brought myself to the table of, of seeing if I even measured up, How many of you, when you read just the Ten Commandments, realize you don't measure up? You don't even come close. Jesus even came out out later, and he's talking about the the law, and he said, listen, if you're even thinking your heart this way, you've committed the very act. And we're sitting there, and we're like, what do I do with this? Well, there's nothing you can do with it on your own except receiving Jesus and the provision of Jesus Christ. He goes on, he says, but sin that it might appear sin was producing death in me 
through what is good, that is the law, so that sin through the commandment might become increasingly sinful. That means I'm seeing it for what it is. So really, the law shows how bad our sin really is. When you hold up a perfect standard, we begin to look pretty bad, don't we? Don't we? Jewelers. You ever, you ever gone to look for jewelry? And, and, and you, you look in the case. I mean, they do it all the time. I, I mean, not that I hang out in jewelry stores, but I've seen it. Anytime I've been in there, I see it. There's always something very dark that's felt. Have you ever noticed that? And then that diamond or that pendant sits right there on top of it. You, you know what the dark felt is intended to do? To show the contrast. To, to cause the brilliance of the diamond or the pendant to stand out. Let me just tell you this. The backdrop of our sin reveals the brilliance of God and his provision through Jesus Christ. And it shows us the contrast of who we are and who he truly is. And that is the beginning of us understanding the fact that we are above the law. We are to live above the law. We're to live above sin. But we're under Christ through his grace. And that's the only way we can really look at our lives. I'll tell you another contrast that breaks my heart all the time. When I go to the Y to work out. And I don't go hang out where those muscle dudes are. Sometimes I see Doug in there and he's got... I don't know what those things are called, but they're big. I mean, it's like his thighs are sitting up there or something. Listen, almost looks deformed or something. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't go beside him and start lifting weights. I go to the other side of the room. You know why? Because when I stand beside him, he looks bigger. And guess what I look like? I look smaller. <laughs> I look like I want to be. <laughs> But you see, when you look at this whole idea of what sin is and where it just shows us the brilliance of who God is and his provision. So what's the solution? Look at Galatians 3. Look here on the screen. Before this faith came, Paul's saying before we came to know Christ on his terms, we were held prisoners by the law. You, you get that, right? Based on the sermon I just taught you, right? We were prisoners of the law. There was nothing we could do. It didn't bring anything good in us, really. It caused frustration. It showed my guilt. It showed my shame. We, we were in bondage. It says we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. So the law, listen, was put in charge to lead us to Christ. You get that? When, we, when, we, when the Holy Spirit begins to reveal Jesus, Christ, and we look at it through the backdrop of who we are, the blackness of our sin and the brilliance of who he is. Listen, it's the Holy Spirit that orchestrates that. It's the Holy Spirit that says, okay, look at him and look at yourself. That's where conviction comes in, is in the contrast. And that's when we begin to be able to move towards what God has for us. So the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ that we might be justified, how? By our works? No, by keeping the law it won't work. We've all proven that. No, by faith. It's by faith. Now that faith has come, listen, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Now think about that. It means the law is not bringing the demands anymore. It means we've gone from a motivation, listen, of I should 
to I want to. We're brought into a relationship. If now I know that the law is perfect, now I know that the law reveals the character of God. I move from I should to I want to. I want to please him. I want to look more like him. And so I begin to make that. Everything begins to change. The law, where it was intended to do over here, and what was frustrating me so much is now something that I want to embrace because it is perfect. It is what, but it's not going to grant my salvation. So here's the application. Has your life taken on new meaning and purpose since you received Christ as your Savior? I mean, think about it. We've gone, listen, they tell us anywhere between 85 and 90%, almost nine out of 10 people tell, tell you that salvation comes by works. Can I give you a word for that? It's called religion. Religion does nothing. It's all found in the relationship. The relationship. Next, is there fruit from the freedom you found in Christ? Is your life producing something? Y'all, let me just tell you this. It will. It will produce something. Not 24-7, not all the time. We still are going to fail at times. But the ugliness, listen, is not something that we desire anymore. The ugliness is not something we're embracing. Now we want to become more like Christ. We want to move in that direction. And as a result, there will be fruit. So I want to close with this. Look here on the screen. Here's the believer. This is, this is us. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you respond to him by faith. You're, it's not religion to you. It's a relationship because you've repented of your sins and come on his terms. You have the believer. Next, you see that we are now, because of that, we are living above sin. We're living above sin. Before, the Bible described the fact we were living under the sin. We were powerless there was nothing in there to make us to, to want to. It's, it was a should thing to us. Next, we're living above the law. The law has its place. The law showed us our guilt. It showed us how, how much lacking we were. Our lives were held up to the backdrop of sin and, and, and law. And we see that and we're like, oh my goodness. And so we did something about it. It doesn't mean the law has no place anymore. It still is perfect. It still reveals who God is. But listen, we're not living under the law. But guess where we are living? As I said last week, we're living under grace now. And that's a whole lot better place to live. A whole lot better place to live. And y'all, until we understand this, we will totally miss what God has for us. Next week, what we're going to do is practically, we're going to look at, the, theolog theologically, we looked at something. Practically, we're going to look at this, what we talked about today. And, and this will give you clear understanding as to what it means to live under grace, above sin, and above the law. And guess what? Paul, I love it when he does this. He gives his own personal testimony. He says, you know something? There are times I still miss it. How many of you miss it sometimes? You're going to be able to identify with them next week. I guarantee you. You're, not that you should ever feel good about your sin, but you're going to be sitting there saying, well, Paul struggled. Man, <laughs> we're all struggling, aren't we? But he's going to show us something next week. But he's also going to show you his deepest desire, which I think will be really cool for you to see. So right now, here's where I want to leave this sermon. I want to ask you something. Where are you this morning? Are you living above sin? Are you living under sin? For those of you who don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you never come to him on his terms. The Bible describes you as living under sin. You're living under the law. 
Now, let me tell you what's so bad about that. One day you're going to stand before the one who created you, and that being God. And you're going to have to stand there based on your own record. That's what it means to live under sin and to live under the law. You're going to have to stand on your own record. I don't know about you. I mean, I haven't killed him. I haven't hurt anybody. In my life. I haven't done those things. But let me just tell you this. I don't want to stand on my record. And I've talked to many of you. You don't want to stand on your record. You want to, listen, you need, you need the provision of Jesus Christ. You need to come under his grace. For the believer that's here today, and maybe you're looking at your life, and this does not resemble what your day-to-day -day living looks like. When you sin, you still, oh man, the burden, the guilt, the shame, the bondage, you're still under it. Guess what? Positionally, that's, if you know Jesus, positionally, that's not how he sees you. That's not how he desires you to live. He wants you living under grace, above sin, and even above the burden of the law because of what he's provided for you. Let that be your reality. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now, and sometimes we just don't understand everything that our life is supposed to be until we look at it through the lens of your word. And Father, this morning, I thank you for what you showed me just this past week as I was looking to present this material today, and I thank you for the things that you revealed in my life, the times that, that I just don't understand the motivations in my own heart. Father, help us to realize that for us to live your word, we got to be in your word. We got to understand who we are in Christ. We got to understand that we are, we are called to live under grace above sin. But Father, I'm so afraid that so many of us in this room, that's not the reality where we're living right now. And Father, I pray if there's someone here today that doesn't know you as our Lord and Savior, that today they would respond that they won't stand on their own record because they see how short they come up, but that they would stand on the provision of Jesus Christ. Maybe today would be the day they move into that arena. Father, I pray for the Christian that's here that just, just needs to live the reality you called them to live. And Lord, we know that will only happen through submission and obedience. And we pray that you work in that. Father, have your way in this invitation. If there's someone here that believes this is their church home, you called them to be a part of, I pray you reveal that also. Have your way in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.